you know, he, he gave me my first print. He was the first person that showed me that this was a process for sharing, that you make work, you can keep one for yourself if you want, but all of the rest are for others. Print friends, and welcome to the 48th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram and Facebook. And you can sign up for our monthly newsletter with print news from around the world, all at pinecopperline.com. We also have a Patreon page, where if you like PCL and you want to toss a few bucks our way each month, it does make a world of difference to us. We have levels starting at just a dollar a month, and if every person who listened to this podcast gave us that dollar a month, we could make this our full-time gig. That being said, we know... This is still a weird time financially for many people out there, particularly those of us in the arts. So if you're not in a place right now to give financially, no sweat. But if you'd still like to support us, leave the show a review or tell a fellow printmaker about it. We're all in this together, you print legends. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. My guest this week is Ryan O'Malley. Ryan joined me from his studio in Corpus Christi, Texas, where he's currently the Associate Professor of Printmaking and Graduate Coordinator at Texas A&M University. But he grew up in Laramie, Wyoming, running around in the woods before studying art on a track scholarship at the University of South Dakota, where he was, as you'll hear, cruelly tricked into studying printmaking. But he's never looked back. I recorded our chat on April 20 of this year, right at the beginning of the lockdown and all the uncertainty we were, and many of us still are, feeling about what our post-COVID world looks like. Listening to both of us do some real-time processing about what's going on was kind of like opening up a time capsule from what seems like a lot longer ago than two months. It was a bit of a reminder of what used to not be the normal but it doesn't stop us from having a wonderful chat about printmaking, teaching, when Ryan broke his neck, and when he got to be the bumblebee spreading the knowledge of printmaking around the country during his time with Drive-By Press. And we got to do all of this while listening to the birds singing outside his studio. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to be pollinated by Ryan O'Malley. Hi, Ryan. How's it going? I'm doing pretty great, Miranda. How are you? I'm good. Good. Thanks for asking. How is the quarantine treating you? We're in a, a good situation as far as being uh, educators, and we're, we're very fortunate. We're, we're salaried. We are um, living in an in a area that's not a big hot spot. We've got mm-hmm. a house, got gardens, you know, we've got plants and animals and um and a beach that we can walk to. So we're, you know, we're making the most of it. It's um, the teaching aspect has been challenging. I mean, to 
challenging is in a good way though really thinking about uh, ways to recontextualize printmaking in a way that can be absorbed online or or done without a press and there's been a lot of people doing really innovative innovative things uh, seeing a lot of posts on instagram and social media people trying out projects with their students and i think it's a really great time uh for sharing that sort of information people are really encouraging others to take you know their efforts and and um use them toward their own uh uh teaching pursuits and um so that that part's been really it's, it's been really good um it's just it's such a strange surreal time and there's so mm. much uncertainty and we're really just just trying to do the best we can and trying to be positive for our students mm-hmm. and um you know, trying to be positive for ourselves as well. And, you know, just thinking about all the sort of normalcies that we miss, but also a lot of the normalcies that we should really be doing away with as yeah. a society. Yeah. You know, the inequities are really laid bare. And, and we're very much aware of that. You know, we're getting a stimulus check that mm-hmm. we really don't need. I mean, we, we really we're thinking about like ways that we can use those funds to help other people, whether it's the food bank here or some friends that are in, in, in struggling that are struggling with it. And, you know, that's just one of the one of the sort of surreal aspects of all of this is, and the, the sort of just the idea that there's there's a lot of inequity that's being exposed. And I really hope that we're paying attention as as a global society to it, um, not just as an American society. I mean, also the the. You know, reading stories every day about how nature is rebounding mm-hmm. in different ways really quickly just because of this pause in our activity. There's scientists that record the vibrations of the earth, you know, or, or different animal, uh, you know, different organisms that they can't hear because of the seismic traffic of humans that all mm-hmm. of a sudden they can. So they're trying to record as much as they can with this sort of opportune time. It's just, yeah, it's just really a surreal there's so much worry for, for others and worry for ourselves. And yeah. How, how are you doing with yeah. all this? <laughs> no, I, I, <laughs> I was thinking about what you were saying about kind of, you know, being comfortable and in this weird situation where, you know, Tim and I are the same way where we're okay right now. And some yeah. days we're actually having kind of a good time because of it. You know, and that yeah. like, oh wow, we haven't had to go into work and and but it's it it's always overshadowed by knowing and I think to some extent in the collective subconscious feeling the danger and the worry and the pain and the trauma that's going on around the world that while yeah. you know, touch wood things are okay for us right now. We're, we're still getting paid for right now. And oftentimes I'll even go a couple of days where I don't think about it. And then it'll mm-hmm. hit me because it's become a new normal to stay home every day. So you're not thinking about it yeah. as much. And but I mean, yeah, it really, it really puts your in check like it, frequently. For sure. A lot of people uh, are sort of in need of that, that check-in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I mean, things have to change after this. They have to change. Mm-hmm. We have some really important decisions to make as a as a global society about that that COVID nineteen generation. That's that's mm-hmm. you know definitely on the way. I'm I'm 
pretty sure about that. <laughs> so, You're like, oh, yeah. yeah. So I know you and your work just kind of through the internet by reputation. I always am curious when it's people that I've known and been in the the sort of printmaking circle with, if we did meet in passing, maybe at an SGCI at some point and just it got blurred together. But I would love it if you could give a little introduction uh, for yourself so people who aren't familiar with you can just learn who you are, where you are, and what you do. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I was born and raised in Laramie, Wyoming, which is a little college town that's about two hours north of Denver, and grew up doing very Wyoming things. I did a lot of camping, hiking, and fishing with my family, and did a lot of sports. I mean, there's really not much to do between September and June in Wyoming because it's snowing. Athletics was a really good outlet for me in addition to art and reading. And so those were sort of my my main things. And I ended up going to the University of South Dakota on swimming and track scholarships. So told you talked to you earlier when we were kind of warming up about getting tricked into printmaking. Yeah. And I, I had done a lot of ceramics in high school. I had no idea really what printmaking was. We hadn't we didn't even do lino cuts or any basic screen printing or anything like that in high school or junior high. And I was in a freshman drawing class my first semester of school at uh, USD, and Lloyd Menard was my teacher. And I think that I responded to him really well because he was like a drill sergeant or a coach. You know, he was coming and yelling at his students. I mean, he, he had a bullwhip that sometimes he would bring oh in gosh. and crash and, uh, or, or a whistle. And I don't know, maybe that, that jock mentality just yeah. really responded to that yeah. sort of pa that rigorous training. That Pavlovian yeah. response, yeah. <laughs> right, right. And so at the at the end of that first semester, like I was I was a really strong draftsman. You know, I was uh, had always been drawing, so you know, I was probably one of those kids that came in thinking that I knew how to draw and had mm -hmm. a lot less to learn than I really, really did. Um but I, uh, you know, at, at the end of that semester, Lloyd took me aside and, and uh, I don't know if I should do it. Well, everybody does Lloyd's voice. He's, he's <laughs> like, you know, you've, you've got a really good hand and you should, you should take my printmaking class next semester and uh. just, just keep quiet about it because I, I don't tell this to, to many freshmen. Um, you know, I, I usually have more upperclassmen in that class, but, but you're really good. So you should enroll. And so I'm like, Ooh, yeah. Like I'm, 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 you know, that competitive nature of yeah. me is like, like, yeah, I got to go for it. You're the chosen I'm, one. You know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the chosen one, of course. And so I got to that class, uh, that following spring semester and, like 80% of that drawing class was in that class. He told that same thing to everybody. And so it's like this bait and switch technique to get people into his printmaking classes. And uh, so that's kind of how I got started in it. And I didn't stick with printmaking because I got it. It's because it was so perpetually frustrating to me. And I just, mm -hmm. I couldn't get over those sort of basic humps. Of, of making work that I was really, where I felt really confident that I understood the process and the materials 
And it just was this constant frustrating challenge that I just could not let go of. Hmm. Um, so that was, that was sort of what kept me invested in it. But uh, not only that, at this point in time, University of South Dakota had one of the best MFA programs in the country for printmaking. And oh, not wow. because of the amount of faculty, it was just Lloyd, not because of the space, you know, not because of the the amount of equipment or anything that we had, but that there were more, I think, per capita, more printmaking MFAs coming out of there that went into teaching in the United States than any other school of its size. And I, there was this an amazing, there was an amazing group of graduate students while I was there. A lot of really great printmakers that are out practicing and teaching now, like Andy DeCon at UNT and Brett Anderson, Matt Egan, um, Susan Hegestad, who's still in Vermilion, Kevin Bowman. There was like all these amazing grads there at that time. Even students like, well, in, in undergrads, uh, Valerie Luth from Tugboat oh, yeah. uh, was studying there. And then her, and then uh, her uh, counterpart at Tugboat, Paul Roden, came in as a graduate student. Um, There's just so many great, great artists and really great people that came through South Dakota at that time. And you know, I was doing sports, uh, you know, a dual, dual sport athlete and trying to make art simultaneously was, they were so, somewhat opposed in the amount of time that it took to, uh, to become successful in either. And, you know, for that first two years, I sort of struggled through that sort of balance. Um, but also was struggling with sort of the, the people that I identified with. Mm. Um, I had really, I was beginning to have a really hard time going out to these, uh, you know, parties in this little town that was full of athletes that just wanted to get drunk and hook up and yeah. uh, do things. And on the other hand, we would go over, you know, the, one of the houses of one of the graduate students and barbecue and talk about music and talk about art and mm. faculty members showed up and undergraduate students and artists in the community. And it just was this really amazing environment. And I mean, international students, you know, a lot of printmakers and, and painters and ceramicists from other countries uh, that were there. It just, it was this amazing group of people that really loved to get together and share. And Lloyd was at the center of it all, sharing stories uh, from his past, um, mm. usually really seedy stories that <laughs> people laugh and really stick, stick in your mind. At 19, after my second year of college, I was with a friend in Delaware and we were body surfing in this really, like a really strong beach break. And at one point, my arms and legs got tangled up and the wave threw me headfirst into the bottom of the ocean and my head stopped, but my body kept going oh. and I, I broke my neck, my, my C3 and the C4. And so I, you know, spent that, this was in like, it was June 8th of 99. And so I spent the rest of that summer in a neck brace and just sort of slowly rehabilitating myself and just contemplating the the demise of my athletic career uh not yeah. that it was going to carry me <laughs> college anyway but I, I did a lot of drawing at that time just as a way to just pass the time and got back to school that following semester in the fall and had this i mean even when i was laying on the beach with my my neck broken i i just i knew that my life was about to change mm. and knew that i get serious about something 
because at this point I'd just been sort of freewheeling, sort of rolling with the punches and not really not really giving all of my energies to one thing. They were really kind of scattered. And so I was going to put everything I had into making art and you know, and, and really that's when printmaking started to make sense. And the way that it made sense to me is I started translating the things that I knew from athletics into the things that I was doing in printmaking. And when I say that, the, the sports that I did with swimming and track, you were competing against yourself first and foremost. That was the main thing. So you would make these great advances and then there were periods of time where you would stagnate or you would plateau. Mm. And that's when you really start thinking about the minutia of what you're doing. And so when I started applying that idea of the minutia of training in athletics, doing like one little thing over and over again that seems insignificant, but that little insignificant thing might make you swim a hundredth of a second faster or jump a quarter of an inch higher, which it's, it's still like that ends up being a major gain, you know? So like that application of that understanding into printmaking and, the, and, and really sort of investing in the minutia of the practice in order to get better and thinking about it holistically, but also thinking about little tiny elements that I could be improving. And so that's where I really started to, to kind of cut my teeth and get a foundation under me. And then there was Frogman's. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the most sort of significant introductions that I had into printmaking as a community. I think it was 2000 was the first Frogman's that I went to, although it had been there right under my nose for my first two years of college. And so I took some classes and, you know, when I explain Frogman's to people that have never been, um, I, I say, you know, you, you can take one class in a, in a certain process for a week, or you can take a class, you know, over two weeks in two different disciplines but by the time you leave, you're going to have a hundred new best friends. Mm. And that was really, that was really what happened at Frogman's. I just, I met people from every walk of life and everybody was interested in sharing and camaraderie and, you know, not just through art, but just sharing personal experiences and, and just sharing, I mean, just generosity of heart and of, and of mind. And it just, I fell in love with it at that point. That's when I really fell in love with printmaking was through Frogman's. And I met a lot of uh, people that have been my friends from then until today. I mean, um, I know in, in Joseph Velasquez's talk with you, he spoke yeah. a lot of John, John Hancock. Mm-hmm. And John Hancock, I think, I can't think of anybody who has introduced more people in printmaking than John Hancock. He is so perpetually interested in people. Hmm. He's a consistent inquisitor. I mean, he sat next to me in that first Frogman's class and just kept asking me questions like <laughs> all day, every day. I'm like, who is this guy? And, you know, and then he was, he'd start introducing me to other people. He introduced me to Joseph Velasquez, I think the following year at Frogman's or maybe two years later, Katie Seals and like all of these uh, all these people that have become my my closest uh, friends and that I've shared really amazing experiences in printmaking with really started through John. And so I like he's I, I have to give him props. He was the very first person that ever gave me a print just because, mm-hmm. you know, just here, you should just just have this. And he and everybody that knows John has, has had this experience. He's just one of the most generous people I know. And you know, he, he gave me my first print. He was the first person that showed me that this was a process for sharing, that you make work, 
you can keep one for yourself if you want, but all of the rest are for others. And that really like that never left me. And it really sort of formed my whole philosophy of why printmaking, why for me and why for everybody else. And yeah. I, that even that, that very print like is, is framed in my bedroom. It's like right next to my bed. I wake up every morning seeing a big skull with a, you know, an eyeball on it, There's a third eye in the middle of it. So that's one of the more formative beginnings for me. Mm-hmm. Some other things that you may not have come across in my, my CV, because I, I don't think they're in there anymore, but to, to really explain the most significant experiences that I've had on my practice as a printmaker and as an educator and as a person, because I, all of those things mm-hmm. are intertwined. I, I went to LSU uh, for graduate school and had a really nice, had a night, had a perfect grad school experience. You know, there's mm-hmm. like, it's different for everybody and it's also exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And I had one of those things. I had that unique experience that everybody else has <laughs> <laughs> and made, made some good, good work, made way more work that I would never want to show anybody. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, had a great group of grads and undergrads there uh, to learn from and great faculty to learn from. And going from Wyoming and South Dakota, which, you know, Mountain State and Midwest State, both small towns, a lot of similarities, but going to Baton Rouge, which is a bigger city in the South, was just such an eye-opening experience. There's the the wealth of, of cultures that exist there. And I mean, New Orleans is just one of the most incredible cities in the world because of that. Um, because of the, it's, it's a birthplace of so many amazing and also really tragic aspects of our culture in the United States. And I got to see all of that. And I, I split two weeks before Katrina came, mm. I graduated, had a premonition because there was one hurricane that went to the left of Louisiana mm-hmm. and there's to the right of Louisiana. And I was like, the next one's coming right up the middle. And sure enough, weeks to the day after I left it, it hit. And I had a lot of friends that were still in Baton Rouge and it was a very, and in and New Orleans. And it was a really, of course, a really scary and difficult time for a lot of people. But um, that wasn't the, the really, really, I mean, grad school is, of course, is really significant, but I went immediately into graduate school because I didn't, I felt if I didn't do that, if I took a year off, I'd end up living in my mom's basement and working construction. <laughs> um, so I was like, no, I got to go to grad school, which I don't recommend for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also a little bit green. You know, I just sort of got the ball rolling in printmaking and, and didn't come out of grad school being an expert in my field as grad school is, is, is really sort of supposed to do or an expert on your own work. I was definitely not an expert mm-hmm. on my own work uh-huh. at that time. So I uh, moved back to Wyoming and lived in my mom's basement and worked construction. <laughs> Uh, through a Wyoming, through a Wyoming winter for one of my best friends. Um, but, uh, you know, 30 below and 60 mile an hour winds when you're up on a roof trying to hammer down shingles is not the way that I wanted to use my degree. Yeah. So I, I moved two hours down the road to Denver and through a good friend was able to get a job working for this immersive artist named Monty Hanson, who has been living and working in Denver for decades. And Lonnie's very theatrical hmm. and very and, and ephemeral. He's he's built cabarets there in Denver, the, the 16th Street Clock Tower and 
there's this big history of the ball sculpture that's in front of Coors Field there that he had done. And every year he'd built these uh, huge cakes for the Denver um, Pride Parade. Uh, he was a really big artist in, involved in, in Denver Pride and um, has, has been doing immersive environments too for his whole life. I think before that really became a thing, you know, before that immersive space like Meow Wolf and Other World Ohio and right. some of those spaces, like Lonnie was really doing a lot of work with, you know, artists around the country and that. So, you know, the difference between printmaking that I immediately had to figure out where, you know, I was working on mesotints in grad school and my face was a foot away from my plate most of the time. And, you know, I, I kind of took that same, I, I, I practiced that same sort of effort with everything that I was doing with Lonnie, you know, mm. smack brushes out of my hands and like, no, 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 this is only going to look good for one month from 15 <laughs> feet away park so don't need to take this much time you, you know he taught me how to track my time to figure out how long it was going to take to get from one thing to the next and also how to you know when you're making work you want to find the the fastest cheapest and easiest way to get from point a to point b without sacrificing the integrity of your idea mm -hmm. um or as or as john Hancock would say caveman no fool caveman use tool um <laughs> So, you know, Lonnie, it's a, it a whole different perspective. So, you know, it, things were ephemeral and they were only going to be seen under very specific circumstances, not in a frame on a wall that was lit just right, so, right. you know, people might be moved. Or this thing is, you know, I was working with like electroluminescent, electroluminescent wires and fiber optic cables and was working with clay and all kinds of weird mosaic and, and you know, building relationships with people he was outsourcing work to. So that that was this really impactful experience on my on my work on my print work because I was approaching creative practice from the opposite end of the spectrum from where I started right I didn't think it could get any any further away but that that work for Lonnie at that time was really seasonal like the Christmas sort of the holidays were really really his busy season and mm. couldn't couldn't keep on full time sort of assistance beyond those times, you know, cause it was feast or famine if you're just a working artist. Yeah. And so I started looking for other jobs in Denver. I was looking on Craigslist every day when I knew this, this gig's about to end. And at one point I found this, um, Craigslist ad that was for a studio assistant for a artistic stonemason. Hmm. And I was looking at the, at the ad and it was asking for somebody who had fine art experience, construction experience, landscaping experience, <laughs> graphic design experience, photography experience, uh, shop management experience, organizational school, uh, skills. And I was like, wow, I have all of these things. So I, I put a cover letter together and went and I got an inter interview like maybe one or two days later uh, with this man, Andy Dufford, who ran a studio called Chevo Studios. And so I went to their office and met with him and I was like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take some mesitance along just because I have no other way to show him that I have any sort of skills whatsoever yeah. um, in this interview form. So I took the mesitance. He, he talked to me about the job and I asked if I could spread, you know, show the mesitance and I spread him out on this architectural table and he was looking at him and he's like, you know, I've taken a few print classes. Uh, hmm. And I, I'm aware of the mesotent process, and I can tell from these works 
that you have a facility for tools and patients. Hmm. And those are the two things that I, and that, I mean, that was like instant guru status for me. <laughs> I, there's no semester that goes by that I'm not saying that to my students. Yeah. You're here above all things to learn for tools and patients because not everybody is going to go out and continue making art. Not yeah. everybody's going to co- continue making prints, but with a facility for tools and patience, you can learn how to apply your understanding and your thought process and your skill set to any problem, you know, to mm-hmm. anything. So that was that initial interview. And so he said, well, there's the second part of the interview. And I was like, oh, this is interesting, which was the next day. He said, I want you to come out to the carving studio. So I showed up the next day and there was a big block of granite sitting in the middle of this, this uh, dirt yard. And there was this huge chainsaw next to it. It was connected to some, some water hoses, a big, big uh, hydraulic chainsaw. And he told me to get up dressed up in all this water safety gear. And he's like, okay, so here's your physical challenge. Your job is to plunge this chainsaw into this block of granite and you're supposed you and I want you to do smoothly and efficiently. And I really, what I want you to do is like, I don't know if he said this or if this has just become part of the story because of another sort of mantra that I use with my students, but he might've said, I want you to put your mind on the end of the tool, like at the, at the end of the blade. So it was like reverse sword in the stone. You know, if I could sink the, the chainsaw into the stone, then I, I would be victorious. You know, I started plunging really slowly. And by taking his, his advice, I could tell if I got to leaning one direction or the other, because you could feel that slight tension differential mm-hmm. and plunged into the stone. I got the job. So I spent the next year and a half carving stone and it became one of the most centering things I've ever done. I mean, the mm. amount of labor was brutal. I mean, I'd come home every day with my knuckles would just be covered in blood and scabs. Sometimes blades would come off of the ends of the inch grinders and bounce off my chest and fly 30 feet away into a field. And, you know, no serious injuries. I, but um, I was carving stone every day, putting my mind, focusing my mind at the end of the tool and feeling the difference of each material that I was carving. So sandstone, you know, Navajo ruby sandstone felt very different than a block of granite or a blue limestone from Pennsylvania or, you know, shale. I got so focused and I got so sensitive to how to use tools and how how to immediately sort of understand surface um, and how it was responding and sort of working in tune with surface instead of against it. There was at one point Andy was like, okay, so it took the universe four billion years to make this rock and you're undoing that in seconds. So, you know, be thoughtful and be patient, you know, take your time, think things through. And so that, I mean, the education of working for Lonnie and working for Andy was, I think, far greater than anything I learned in graduate school because I was putting the things that I learned in graduate school to a practical test in something that was out outside of my range of experience. And I, and I succeeded. I mean, there's also a difference between a grade and a paycheck. I mean, that's a huge right. motivator yeah. as well. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. the, the very last project I got to do with Andy 
was uh, build an amphitheater in the south room of the Grand Canyon. We built the Mather Point Amph Amphitheater. Oh. And so I I came in on to the job uh, late. This was actually, I had worked for Andy and I'd gone off and taught for two years at Davidson College and I toured with Drive-By Press for a year and then did this job with Andy, he called me in and they had done a lot of the construction on the amphitheater already. And I came in to do a lot of the sort of fine work, the fine detail, which for the first three days was just hitting rock with an ax to shape it to look like it was shaped by water and wind. But we were right on the edge of the Grand Canyon. I was right there for a month with working with a crew of masons from all over the country. And every day, at least once a day, one of the crew members would just get stuck, just staring out into the canyon, like staring oh. down into the bottom of it, uh -huh. staring across it for 10 minutes, just not moving. And, and I, I did the same thing, you know, it was just the most amazing experience to be a part of. And the very first function that amphitheater was used for was a immigration and natural naturalization ceremony, which I, you know, also think is beautiful. Yeah. Um, but that's the only work of art that I can say definitively that I had a hand in that has been seen by millions of people, right. you know, and that yeah. will, will hopefully outlast humanity, you know? Uh, I mean, not hopeful in, yeah. in humanity's demise, but right. hopeful in the understanding that this amphitheater is going to be here through millennia, you know, that can be, uh, that can be used in, in some, some regard. And I, you know, print, is a pretty ephemeral media and this, this sort of permanence, the, the patience and permanence that was involved in carving stone shaped my perspective as a printmaker from the opposite perspective of where I was with Monty. So printmaking sort of sat in the middle of these two poles and those things set my confidence in place to where I, I realized that I could figure out how to make anything. Doesn't mean I'm gonna make any everything good, you know, mm -hmm. by no means is everything I make gonna be good, but I can figure it out. And that's a wall that so many people have a difficult time climbing over. But, you know, that, that was the experience that got me there. You know, everybody else has got their own unique story that put them into that place where you, you finally get it, where it all clicks. And, and realize that the skill set that you have can translate through many, many different types of media or, or challenges, you know? Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and you know, what I was thinking about hearing you sort of tell the story is so often we get, we get told to compartmentalize things, you, you know, that, oh, your job doing construction, that's just you paying your dues. It's not going to have anything to do with your art career. Labor is something for the uneducated and you're educated. You're just doing your time. You'll get your reward, right? Or, or even vice versa. And I think it's really always significant to point out that everything truly is connected. And the skills that you learn in a rock quarry, you can apply to your woodcuts. And I think maybe even super significantly in our current time when there are probably quite a few art students who are looking to graduate in the next month or so here who might find themselves not doing jobs in the arts for a year or two while our world kind of finds its new way forward after the pandemic and the recession. 
it just seems really good and and timely to have that particular conversation right now basically because it's those students yeah. have been on my have been on my mind lately yeah i mean it's really seeing the it's it's seeing it holistically it's seeing the connectivity of it all and i think as a culture we're so used to immediacy and we're not prone to thinking about time in a uh, broader perspective. Okay, if, if it's going to take a year or two that you're going to be doing something that you really don't want to be doing, you know, in the in the course of, of our, hopefully, everybody's long, productive lives, that is a blip. There was a particular experience that I was having one time that was really trying on me, and I was really not sure that I was doing the right thing. And I, I talked to my mom, and, and she wasn't prone to saying prophetic things all the time, but she was like, you know what? This is a this is a year contract. You can do anything for a year. She's like, mm-hmm. do you think I wanted to go through therapy for a year? No, but I did it. <laughs> like looking back on it, it's a really short amount of time by comparison. And so I, I keep that in, I keep that in mind anytime things are getting really difficult. I'm like, okay, let's like let's put this into perspective. Like, yeah, this feels like it's this is awful. You know, this this quarantine is awful. It's really, really affecting people in very significant ways. And I'm not not to take that away from anybody, but we also have to look at it in perspective of this is hopefully a fixed period of time for all of us and things will start to rebound. You know, we have to like we have to put our heads down. We have to I mean it's I think it's really it's just accepting that this is the reality that we're living in. And it's mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. And it's, we've really globally been protected from anything of this nature for a hundred years that like everybody is being affected by this all across the world and accepting that this is the reality and we have to face it, that we can't, we can't deny that this is happening. We can't pretend that things are normal. We have to face it. We have to recognize it and figure out how we can make this time better for ourselves and those around us, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's, I was watching the Dave Chappelle uh, documentary of him winning the uh, Mark Twain prize in literature, uh sorry, in humor. And he got on stage and uh, when he was receiving the award and it was talking about how this, this is Tony Morrison said, this is when artists go to work. And there's a whole beautiful continuation of, of this quotation, but looking at the way, you know, if we look at our artist community as printmakers, because we know a lot of people, everybody's making masks. People are, are using their 3D printers to, you know, help uh, health workers by printing all sorts of equipment and things that can help make the masks more comfortable or face shields or, you know, sharing with other educators, just like sharing assignments. Uh, sharing video demo videos that they made, you know, to to help each other through this. And I see a lot of people going to work right now. And it's the one thing that makes a person feel hopeful through all this. You know, when our <laughs> our governments are failing us yeah. in the ways that we need them the most, like people are responding in the ways that that are really making positive difference. Yeah. And I think it's what's so nice is that it it can be both, you know, where you can be surprised and also completely understanding it. Because I think one of the things that we've we've talked about earlier was how you and I have both had that experience of that intrinsic generosity of printmakers really throughout the world, how you can show up in a different country and find the printing studio there 
and just send a message and someone's going to say, yeah, come on by and then we'll go get a beer afterwards. And I think that that real sense of global community, it comes out in times like these where a lot of people have said, oh, the world feels small now, but I feel like it's kind of always felt small to people in printmaking. That, that generosity, I mean, outside of, of Frogman's, where it really sort of solidified for me and a lot of my beliefs as a printmaker and as an educator and as a human being came from my experience uh, touring with Drive-By Press. You know, Joseph and, and Greg from Drive-By had been touring together for, I think, four or five years up to that point and had sort of made enough headway through their incredible efforts over four years and all the places that they'd gone to split into two operations. So Greg was going to focus mostly on the East Coast and Joseph was going to focus mostly on the West Coast because Greg was a little bit more linked to the East in terms of family and and such, and Joseph as well with um, you know family in Texas. And so the fall of 2000, and we actually, we did go quite a few spaces on the on the east coast which was really great and then the following year in 2010 an artist by the name of nick alley and i toured (laughs) joseph was uh kind enough to switch cars with me i got we got the uh the honda element and he got my now extinct uh osmobile alero (laughs) and uh and he gave us the keys and he was like go go keep spreading the ink you know and so Nick and I, we talked in our, our lectures about having the fervor of the convert. Joseph and Greg had been sort of proselytizing the print gospel uh, to the point where we, you know, we were all on board. And when we went out on tour, it was just, it was this really incredible experience to get to see firsthand what is happening, the trends that are happening in American printmaking from coast to coast, to see what people were doing in their studios, in their shops, you know, not just the work that they were making, but how they were arranging studio spaces, yeah. how they're arranging shops, um, and then getting to be like bees, spreading pollen from flower to flower. You know, we'd go to one university and there might be a faculty member or a student that's doing some process that's innovative or interesting, and we see how it's done. And, you know, printmakers with a form of bragging for us is sharing what we did. You know, mm. you don't hide your secrets in the vault. You, you show them to somebody else and then let them sort of take them in their own direction. And so we would learn something at one location and we would take it to the next location and be like, hey, just look at this thing that we just learned. And we would, you know, try to demonstrate it or pass it along. And, you know, going back to the idea of generosity at every single place that we stopped, you know, the people that were hosting us, whether they were faculty members or students, would just just give you their shirt off their back, open up their homes to you, mm-hmm. open up their studios, their families, their friends, take us to their favorite restaurants, you know, show us natural wonders that they loved. You know, getting a chance to do that for a year and meeting students from all over the country and, and seeing how the proof is in the pudding with when we say printmakers are generous people, like I got, we got to experience that every single day, every day was just a joy. Just like, even when it was hard, even when we were sick, when we'd been on the road, hadn't slept, um, when we were, you know, getting tired of that person that was sitting <laughs> less than six feet from you all yeah. times, you know, that there was still like incredible amounts of, of joy in every single day because of the generosity uh, that was shown to us, but also just to like put in perspective what we were doing, like to see 
that we were touring around the country, showing people our love for printmaking and, and having that returned to us in kind, like imagine what it's like to live like that, you know, <laughs> it's a, it's yeah. an experience. It's an experience that I, I mean, it was one of the most important things that I'd ever done and it happened right at the right time too. And I, you know, really am so indebted to Joseph for that opportunity because it just, it brought everything together. All of those experiences that I had had in making in struggling in working and teaching and organizing a studio space, uh, in learning how to communicate with people. You know, if you're giving, if you're giving talks every single day of your life, you get really good at doing things on the fly, which was not something that I was used to doing. I mean, I was really had difficulties communicating in a really articulate way prior to that experience, because it just, it wasn't something that I was practicing every day. Or, or thoughtfully, not just articulately, but thoughtfully, being able to be thoughtful on the fly. And, you know, so that really just sort of tied up those whole experiences together in a way that made me ready at that time to be an educator, to really respond in a way that I knew I could be a, a better mentor and a more thoughtful person and a better advocate for my students. And that's, it's right at that time that I landed down here at, in Corpus Christi, at Texas A&M Corpus Christi. So how long have you been at uh, Corpus Christi then? I've been here for a decade. Okay. I've been here for 10 years now. And it's the longest I've lived anywhere outside of Wyoming. I, I maintain a Wyoming phone number, but that's all I've got left <laughs> uh, aside from my family. But, you know, Corpus Christi, I, and I never thought I would be living in Texas. I never thought I would be living in South Texas, which is a world unto its own. I mean, keep Austin weird is just like a corporate slogan at this point uh-huh. corpus is weird <laughs> corpus is weird corpus you know, walks is, the walk it's a yeah, it's a, yeah. i mean it's a, it's a city with so many unique identities you know it's it's an oil town it's a beach town you know there's a lot of industry here but there's also like a lot of tourism and surf culture and it's a you know ranching and it's a, a latinx community and you know it's a what else could I say? There's so many things. It's a fishing town, you know. It's a, uh, it's it's got this really closely knitted arts community. Um, it's a really big, small city. I think we're the 59th biggest city in the country, but mm. it feels really, really small. You know, I, I came down here kind of like at Davidson in a in a visiting artist position that ended up turning into a tenure track. But I always kind of felt like I might keep one foot slightly out the door, you know, Mm. because I just wasn't, you know, wasn't sure that this was the right place for me. But the thing that, that happened immediately. And and one thing that I talked to new faculty that, that arrive here about is your, your impact on the students here is felt immediately Mm. and their impact on you is, is subsequently felt immediately because we're, you know, we're a pretty regional serving university. We're, I think our enrollment might be a little bit down right now, but we're around 11, 12,000 students. Um, we're part of the A&M system. Uh, but we, we largely serve the sort of Corpus Christi area and the Rio Grande Valley that's, that's south of us to the border of Mexico. Although there's a lot more students coming in from, you know, San Antonio, Austin, Houston, Dallas. We're, we're really known for our marine biology. We've got the Heart Research Center here, which is a, is a real big research uh, institution in that field. But, you know, the, the students here are, you know, it's a, it's a largely first generation college student campus, you know, students that really haven't 
haven't had that sort of mentorship from their their parents about what to expect. You know, so this is a, a very new experience for them and for their families. And a lot of students have families. They have children or they're taking care of family members. You know, we've got a lot of veterans, uh, a lot of students on the LGBTQ uh, spectrum. You know, we're a Hispanic serving institution. There's, you know, it's just, it's this, you know, most of the students, a lot of them work full-time or, you know, almost all of them have part-time jobs. So it's just, it's a really diverse place to be. And the students are just, they're, they're hungry for education. Mm -hmm. You know, they might, they might not like outwardly project it, but they really are when, when they're, when you're giving them your attention and your mentorship, the way that they respond, I, it is so fulfilling and so impactful. And a lot of these students have not been places before. They haven't traveled. They haven't had opportunities to even go as far north as Austin, which is three hours from here. I can't, I can't name the amount of students that have gone to Austin for the Print Austin Print Month that happens in January. You know, a lot of that, that's their first time getting north of San Antonio. I mean, there was one time uh, there was a print conference in um, the Gulf print storm in Beaumont, Texas, that Zinio Fedoroshenko put together. And this was my first semester here. And I got, you know, a a van of about eight students together and we're driving up to Beaumont, uh, which is four hours like northeast of here. And a couple of hours away, one of the students is like, oh, wow, the trees are getting taller. I was like, well, that's that's an interesting sentiment. I was like, how far north have you been? And she's like, San Antonio. And yeah. I was like, your mind is about to get blown. Yeah. You know? We're going to see cypress trees going. There's going to be alligators. You know, it's like <laughs> just being able to being able to provide students that experience here. It's so invaluable and it changes them, you know. My favorite type of student is the one who my first experience with them is them cringing in a corner and being too afraid to talk about their work. And by the time they finish the program are sort of mentors of the of the studio. The amount of lives who who get to cross paths by doing this is just it's not it's something that I is difficult and tiring and frustrating as it can be. It's like the most rewarding profession that I could imagine myself in. My teaching and my creative practice and the way that I live my life as a human being are all sort of linked through the same practice, if that makes sense. Um, I don't, I don't delineate those things from any, from, from each other anymore because it's all just, again, coming back to this idea of a holistic practice. Um, it's all part of the same thing. I'm a bit of a chameleon in my work. I've realized over time, but a lot of that's because I want to continue to learn either new like technical approaches or even new aesthetic or conceptual approaches to making so that I can impart that on my students. But on the other hand, I use my students as guinea pigs for things that I don't know how to do (laughs) and I watch their results and I learn from them all the time too. So uh, it's a, it's a pretty wonderful give or give and take. Yeah, because I was um, one of the questions that I had for you that was sort of specific to your work is when you call yourself a chameleon, I feel like when you go through your portfolio, you see so many different media represented, Um, you know, mezzotint reduction, woodcut, like all kinds of different things. 
And I was curious about why you found yourself having that range um, and that difference between, you know, really like versatility versus sort of speciality within your practice. But it makes sense that that kind of passion for that knowledge, but also to first and foremost, be an educator and be able to impart that onto other people as part of like that whole different journey of, of your own artistic practice. Well, I mean, it, that, that's not something that, I mean, that's something I think about a lot and it, and it's a source of, of frequent insecurity for me. I mean, it, it is. And I think, but it's, it's insecurity is something that keeps you hungry, you know, mm-hmm. um, if you channel the right way, you know, obviously it can be a, it can be a crippling difficulty, but if you, if you can figure out how to channel insecurity or balance it with, with confidence, it, I think it can be a, a, it can be a benefit. It can keep you, it can keep you hungry. Yeah, definitely. We've come to, to the end of my recording time, but before we go, I definitely want to make sure that people know how to find you, whether on Instagram or through your website, to see your work, learn about maybe coming to Corpus Christi to study if they're inspired and just all that good stuff. I'm on Instagram at Ryan O'Malley Art, and there's a link through there to my website, which is so far behind in updating. Uh, that that aspect suffered but yeah those are those are the two platforms that i can be found and we accept grads in the early parts of the year i'm not only want hard-working excited community-based practitioners to come down and study with me but i also want to be a resource for students that are looking for programs in general because you know this isn't going to be a fit for everybody but i you know i know a lot of programs out there graduate programs that have faculty members that students might work really well, work really well with or fellow grads or a city that might just be right for that person. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm, I, I love being a resource in that regard, um, just to, to find ways to support people. Well, thank you. And it was so nice to connect and I'll be in touch as the podcast starts to develop and when I think it'll come out. And yeah, it's been super great to chat, Ryan. I'm so glad we got to connect and know each other a little bit better. And I'm sure it won't be the last time. I hope not. Yeah, please stay in touch. And um, yeah, I hope you get some good nuggets out of that conversation. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when I have a very special guest a Spanish tattoo artist who goes by the mononym Miriam. She uses traditional Indian woodblocks to plot out markings on her clients before tattooing them by hand poking. We have a wonderful conversation about the ways in which textile, woodblock, and tattooing all intersect and how they all can take you around the world. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.